we will read this morning Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the Word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You and we praise You for Your grace, for Your mercy, for Your love. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have not left us in darkness, but You have revealed Yourself, that You have revealed Your amazing work of salvation to us in, in the words that are now before us. We pray, Father, that Your Spirit, who inspired this author, would also inspire the preacher and would open the hearts of those hearing and listening that your word would change us, that it would accomplish the purpose that um, it is, is uh, its purpose today. We pray that you would be leading all things so that your name would be glorified. Amen. The letter to the Hebrews is an amazing book. I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it. Um, I personally like it very much and I, I find it extremely rich. It is Sometimes it is a bit different from what we're used to, and so sometimes it's a bit surprising and it's a bit challenging. Um, as the name entails, this is a book that was written to Jews. And so it is written in the way Jews of the first century were used to, be, uh, to, to read the scriptures and were used to uh, uh, be exhorted. And um, it is like a long biblical theology. It is a Bible study, if you like. The author of the book spends most of the book studying the Old Testament and explaining what it meant, explaining what it was about, and especially connecting it with the person and the work of Christ. So it is a long biblical theological work, but the purpose of it is not merely or primarily even uh, uh, teaching the, the, the people to whom it was addressed, it is actually to exhort them, to encourage them. From what we can uh, find in, in, the, in the letter, we, 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 we hear that the church, to the Christians to whom that letter was addressed, were facing difficult circumstances. Their life wasn't easy. In fact, the author of the letter compares their, circum their circumstances with uh, the circumstances of the people of Israel in the desert when they spent 40 years roaming that dry, parched land. And in fact, we see that for the author, this is a model or a, a, a typical description of the life of Christians. Because, yes, we have left, we have left Egypt, we have left our sin behind, but we are not yet entered into the promised land. We are in this between time. We are freed from our sins, but we haven't yet 
received our full inheritance. And this is a time of trials. This is a time of suffering. This is a time of what the author, uh, the author will use expression, this is a time of the work. We are here to work. The work of faith. It's not yet the time of rest. And in that time of trial and testing, we can be tempted to question the promises of God. We could be tempted to question the work he has accomplished in his son. And we could be tempted to leave the path that he has for us and drift away from him. And in particular, uh, in this context, we might be tempted to try to leave the path of the covenant, to leave the covenant community, to leave our covenant promises and obligations and turn away from all those. And he is writing this letter to remind us of this covenant, but also to remind us of its foundation that is found in Jesus Christ. So let us look at those few verses and look at the, these elements. Those few verses are, kind of, are really an introduction to the whole epistle. The, the core teaching of the epistle is already found here. So we will look at those, at those few verses. And uh, they put in place a few basic patterns or structures that are important to understand the Holy Epistle and to understand our situation as Christians living in this in-between times. The first two verses uh, make a contrast, create a contrast between two times, two periods of time. And it is talking about God speaking and God speaking at two different periods of time to two different groups of people and in two different manners. The first one in verse 1 uh, is about how God spoke to our fathers. Who are those fathers? It seems pretty clear that the author has in mind their ancestors, the community, the, um, is, um, these, the Jewish community of the time of Moses, those who received the covenant of God at Mount Sinai. And he's saying to those people, God spoke. Now, when was that? That was a long time ago. You know, at the time of writing, it had been about 1,500 years since God had spoken to His people and given His, His covenant in Moses. So, so a long time ago, God spoke to our fathers and the way He spoke to them is described in two, uh, through two expressions. First, He spoke to them by the prophets. And then, He spoke to them it's many times and in many ways. Basically it's saying that was a diversity of, 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 uh, of means that God used to speak to them. There were a, different, a variety of times when He did. So it's a time when God used many people to speak to them in many different ways at many different times. You, you understand the diversity, the multiplicity, the, uh, uh, the number of things that happened. And it's through this way 
that God spoke to our Father. Um, it's interesting to notice that in the way it's written in the Greek, those expressions by the prophets in many, in many ways or in many times are really qualifying the way that God spoke. It's, it's, it's like describing the quality, the type, the kind of speaking that God used. Okay? And now he's contrasting what God has done in the past with what we often call the Old Covenant, the covenant that was given through Moses, the covenant of grace given through Moses. And he contrasts that with now, or what would be for him now. And he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us. Change of tense in the verb. He has spoken to us by his son. Notice, a long time ago, God spoke. It's been a long time ago, and it's been and it's happened over a long period of time. God spoke. But in these last days, God has spoken. He has done it. It's complete. It's finished. It's, it's finished. It's, there's, he's not continuing to speak. It's done. He has spoken. The action of speaking is over. And the time, the now, is described as these last days. I would paraphrase that to say these, the last days. He's not just saying God spoke to us last week. You know, the last few days God spoke to us and that's the final word. No, what he's saying is there are two different kinds of times. Two different nature to the spirits. There's in the past, long time ago, and the last days. You see the author here is speaking of the last days in their eschatological meaning. That means that's the time when God's work is complete. When God's work has reached its fullness, its completion. You see, in the New Testament, there are only two periods of time. There's before Christ, which is the times, the centuries, and then there's the last days, the last period of time, the last hour. We are now living in that in those last days. We are now living in that eschatological time when God's purposes are completed. Now we also know that those last days are the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. This is the time period we are in. And in that time period, in that time that is the final time, God has spoken. That means that this is His final word. The word that God has spoken through His Son or by His Son or in His Son is the final word. There's nothing to add to it. It is complete. It is full. It is eschatological. Now, the author here doesn't actually use the term word. He's only... He's only 
using the verb for the God has spoken. Now, of course, usually when you speak, you utter words. So that's why I've been using word here. But we'll see that what the author has in mind is, is, is not just God's revelation, God's word, but God's revelation and word of a covenant. So, in these last days, God has spoken once for all and in a final manner through His Son. You see the difference nature of, or, or quality of what God has said is not just that He has done it He had done it in the, in the past it took a long time it was diverse and multiple but also that He used prophets prophets are just servants prophets receive the word from God and pass it on it's not their word and they are to some extent passive recipients of that word of that revelation that God gives. They are human beings. And so, the word they receive, they pass on. But they do so as servants. As people who are uh, not directly uh, related to the word they're sending. It's the word of somebody else that they, that it, that it uh, transmit. However, the Son... The Son is not a servant. He is the Son of the Great King. He is the one who knows the Father in a way that no one else can. What God is saying through the Son is coming through a person who knows God most intimately. It is the word that is coming through the person through whom all has been accomplished. He knows it inside out. Whatever he says is not just coming from someone else. It's actually coming from himself. So you see that what God has spoken is not only different because it is coming at his catalogical time. It's not only different because it's not coming through a long period of time, through a number of ways and at different times, through a number of people. And now it's coming through one person at one time. There's also a difference because the one through whom God has spoken is the Son, not the servant. And you see, through the book of Hebrews, the author will contrast the Son being the Son with the servant that God has used to accomplish His work in the past. First, in the, cha- in the verses that follow here, He will contrast the Son with the angels. And then he will contrast the son with Moses himself. And then he will contrast the son with the priesthood, the, uh, the priesthood that was established with Aaron and his descendants. And each time he will show how this son, because he is son, is much greater than they were. But because he was greater, therefore the work he has accomplished is much greater than theirs. And he will shows some of the qualities that are different. And one of them is that it's once for all. Another quality is that it's the final work. There's nothing to be added to it. There's nothing else to accept. It's also a work that is much more glorious and majestic. It's also a work that brings glory, not glory, but grace in a way that was not before. 
So here, the author is telling us who that son is. Yes, he is the son, but what else is that son? What, what, what distinguishes him as son? What makes him son? Or what is unique to him as son? But one thing is that he is, this son is appointed as the heir of all things. He is the one who will inherit everything. Everything there is, or I should say everything there will be, is his and no one else's. Being the only son, is he inherits everything that God owns. And later, the author will make clear that what he has in mind is the new creation. Being the heir of all things, that also means he's the one who rules over all things. Because if he owns it, he has authority over it. And in the picture that is given here, especially as we're, later he will be speaking about the majesty of God, the high throne of God, it's clear that what he has in mind is that he has inherited all things as king. And then he says, through that son also, he created the world. So the son that is, that is in view here is someone who not only will own everything that is, but actually was involved in the creating of everything there is. Now, I don't know for you, but there's a paradox here, I think. I'm sorry, but if the son created all things, how can it be that he doesn't own it? How can it be that he must inherit what he has made? That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, I mean, at this point, we'll come there, there, that makes sense, but this is paradoxical at this point. You see, it's intriguing. If you're reading the verse and you don't know what's coming after, you read that and you see, okay, he's the heir of all things, great. Wait a minute, he's also the one who created all things? How can he inherit? How can he not be the owner and lord of what he has made? He continues here. He says, this sun is the radiance of the glory of God. Wow. What glory. If, if there's anything that looks more like God. There, no, there's nothing else that can look more like God. There's nothing else that can resemble God and reflect God's nature than this sun. He is the radiance, the brightness of the glory of God. The glory being um, a biblical way of speaking of the presence and the very being of God Himself. The very nature of who God is in all His perfections. So that son is the radiance of the glory of God and is also the exact imprint of His nature. In other words, He is the exact image of the nature of God. Once again, I think there's, there's a little of a paradox here. If he's the radiance of the glory of God, how can he be at the same time the glory of God being shining, shining forth and an image of that glory? And then he continues, This Son upholds the universe by the word 
of his power. Not only is he the one through whom God created all things, but he is the, he's the one who by his powerful word, by a word that has so much power, can uphold, sustain everything there is. And this is the one who will inherit everything. He continues, and I think here he gives us the key to that kind of paradox. Obviously, describing the Son as being the radiance of the glory of God, describing Him as the one through whom God created all things, describing Him as the one who upholds all things by His word, He's describing Him as God Himself. Only God is Creator. Only God has the power to sustain creation. Only God can rule over this world. And yet, that Son, who is God, obviously, also must inherit this world. And He is an image of this God. This is the mystery of the Incarnation. And here He tells us, this Son, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The turning point is this work of expiation, of atonement, of purification of our sins. And now, now that he has completed that work, he is seated on the throne of God. He is ruling over the world, over creation. And here, there's a sentence that is so surprising. In fact, um, I've had occasion to preach on this part of Hebrews, and I've had people who were very uncomfortable with that part. It says here that the Son has become superior to the angels. And the reason he is superior to those angels, or the way he became su- much superior to the angels, is because of the name he has inherited. Because that name is more excellent than the name of the, of the angels. And what is that name? Well, it's very clear in what follows. Verse 5, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. So, what is he saying here? He's saying that the eternal Son of God became Son of God by making purification for sins. How can he become what he is? Here we have the mystery of the incarnation in in its full glory. Obviously, the author is speaking about Jesus. He hasn't used the name yet. You've noticed that. The name Jesus hasn't appeared yet. It will appear later. But it hasn't appeared yet. Now, 
Because we know the, the end of the story, we know he's talking about Jesus. But the person of Jesus, we, we speak of him as being the Son of God. I, believe, I trust you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't you? But what do we mean by that? You see, that expression, Son of God, has actually a variety of meanings. Or if you prefer, it's referring to different, to different aspects of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God as the second person of the Trinity. He is God from all eternity. However, He is also Son of God as the Son of Adam who fulfilled the requirements of the covenant of works, the covenant that was given to Adam. The Son of Adam who fulfilled the covenant of works and also died for the sins of mankind. And in doing that, He is the human Son of God. The perfect, eschatological Son of God. He is at the same time the radiance of the glory of God and the created image of that, of that glory. He is at the same time the God who rules the whole universe from all eternity and the human king who will be ruling over the new creation for eternity. He is truly the God-man, the mediator who brings together God and mankind in Himself. And the one work, the one action that is at the crossroads of those, or that makes this connection possible, is His death and resurrection. Of course, the uh, incarnation is in the background here, because He could not have lived on this earth like a man, and lived a perfect life, and died and be raised again if He wasn't man. But you see, the, the focus is not on the incarnation as such. The focus is on the fact that He became man to die for our sins. And that's the final work of God in terms of our salvation. In terms of His plan for this world. That's the Gospel. And from that gospel comes everything else we believe and everything else we can live as Christians. But notice here that the author is speaking about what God has spoken or what God has revealed through this Son and in this work of the Son. And later, we haven't read those verses, but later in chapter 2, he will draw an exhortation out of that reality. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What we have heard has not come from human servants who were 
who were fallible like us, who were sinful like us, who had only a glimpse of the glory of God and of His truth. But what we have heard has come from the Son. And therefore, because of all we've said, it's coming from the Son, it's eschatological and everything else, we must pay much closer attention. It's much more serious. It's much more important. It has a lot more authority. And then he contrasts it. If what was heard through the angels and the servants of God, if, if any transgression of that led to punishment, how much more if we now transgress this covenant? How much more now should we expect eschatological punishment? How much more should we pay attention? Now, you see the seriousness of the situation we find ourselves in being coming in these last days. However, we also have a greater promise. God has saved His people. You see, with Moses, God was going to save His people. But God has saved His people in Christ. He has fulfilled His covenant in Christ. The blood of Christ, the epistle tells us, is the very foundation, the very establishment of His covenant of grace with His people. We now have a Savior who is ruling the whole world. We now have a high priest who is interceding for us. We now have a captain who has been through the same temptations and trials and sufferings as us. And He has overcome. And He is the one who not only um, I don't remember the exact wording he's using, but he's the initiator of our faith, but he's also the one who will bring it to completion. So yes, this is a time of trial. This is a time of danger to some extent. However, we are safe in Christ. And this is what baptism symbolizes. Baptism is a symbol of destruction, punishment. This is why Jesus speaks about his own death and us, his baptism. And it is striking that in the Gospels, God declares that Jesus is His Son at the times in His life that most directly, most immediately speak of His death on the cross. His baptism, the transfiguration, and then after the resurrection. Paul says that the resurrection demonstrates that He really was Son. That he is Son. So, what we have in Christ has immeasurable value. What we have heard through Christ, what we see in Christ, cannot be compared to anything. So, shouldn't we pay close attention? 
Is there anything else that could compete with that? Let us pay close attention to what God has done in Christ and to what He has established in Christ, to His covenant of grace. And by His grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, let us press on even when life is difficult, even when circumstances make us doubt that God has really said, that God has really done that God is really who He claims to be because of Christ you see the core of the exhortation of Hebrews is let us hold fast to our confession if you want to remain faithful till the end if you want to stick with this covenant till the end till the resurrection the key to that is holding fast to our confession of who Jesus is and what He has done This is the keystone of all our hope and faith and our life as Christians. Let us pray. Our Father and God, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work of salvation. We thank you that he can say that all is accomplished, one on the cross. There is nothing to add to his work. Thank you, Father, that he is the one who uh, not only saved us, but brought us to faith. And He is the one who will guide us all the way till we reach the eternal Sabbath rest, till we reach the promised land, till we reach our eternal inheritance, the new Jerusalem. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, and thank you for the gift of your covenant. Thank you for the gift of your Word. Thank you for all you have given us to guide us and to lead us in our life and to face the trials and sufferings and sorrows and challenges of this life. Father, we know that we are only dust. We are weak. We are sinful. And Father, we do need Jesus. We do need your Son. We do need our Savior. We do need our Captain. We do need the one who will uh, fulfill, finish the work He has started in us. Father, bless us with your Spirit. And help us as we strive to hold fast to our confession and to obey to your covenant in any circumstance by the power of your Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.